Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. But first, we start with the story that's been a focus for us here all this week, and that is the sprawling encampment on Hastings Street. An estimated 400 people have been living down there. And a lot of people I've talked to say this is the worst conditions they have ever seen in Canada's poorest neighborhood. The order to remove tents and structures from the sidewalk issued on July 25th. That was two and a half weeks ago. There are still tents down there. And we saw violent clashes with police earlier this week. I've got BC Green Party MLA Adam Olson standing by first. Have a listen to this. These are some of the residents down there being asked to take their tents down and move along. It's like, hey, we got nowhere else to go. Have a listen to this. You don't think these things will be back here next week? Some started taking down their tents and packing up their belongings, but the question on everyone's mind, where to go next? It's a, it's a darn good question. Uh, honestly, probably nowhere. Uh, I think at this point, I mean, I really don't have any other options, so I'm probably just going to stay where I am. It's like the same thing with the housing when we had Tent City last time. They said they were going to get us housing. Nothing. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Adam Olson, BC Green Party MLA for Saanich North and the Islands. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Adam, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for the invitation, Mike. Hey, Adam, I know you've been down there to the neighborhood there. What What are your impressions when you've been down there recently? Do you think, is it the worst that you've ever seen down in the downtown east side? Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a bad situation. There's no doubt about it. And I think that it's, uh, you know, that, it's not just, I think, uh, contained or, or in the downtown east side. I think uh, many neighborhoods in the downtown core of Vancouver uh, are experiencing uh, the, the uh, increasing and growing challenges with homelessness. And, and uh, uh, certainly the impact of that uh, is being felt across the city. But the, 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 the shocking conditions in, in the downtown east side uh, absolutely needs to be addressed. Yeah, what did you see down there when you were down there visiting? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, I think what, what I was taken aback by is I'd, I'd never seen the the downtown core of this uh, of Vancouver uh, with uh, so much garbage accumulating uh, just on the streets. It just it feels like uh, it, it's not just the downtown east side that that many neighborhoods down there have just been um, let go. Um, you know, I think uh, I witnessed uh, people defecating on the streets, uh, bathing in in um, fountains and uh, ponds, uh, you know, attached to fountains in the downtown core. Just just really a, a complete lack of, of services, ba- just basic human dignity services, places for people to go to the bathroom, places for people to get cleaned up, uh, for people to, uh, to, to sleep at night. Uh, these, are just, these are just the most basic things that I think people should be able to expect. And, you know, when I asked the minister former minister, I guess, now of, of housing, whether he felt uh, and his government felt, uh, the BCNEP government felt that housing was a human right, uh, he answered very quickly that they do, and and um, that is not uh, what we see in the downtown uh, core of Vancouver right now. 
You issued a statement yesterday calling this a humanitarian crisis. Why do you feel that way? Well, because these are our these are our, our brothers and sisters. They are our cousins. They are our, our friends and neighbors. These are people, and um, the the problem has been growing for weeks. It's it's not a surprise. The downtown east side has has existed for years. Um, government officials uh, have made choices to do other things to invest money elsewhere, while this problem continues to grow and and no real solutions have been found. Billions of dollars have been spent uh, invested in BC housing to build certain types of housing. And, and they, you know, they've been, you know, there's been a lot of questions about that over the recent weeks. We have a situation, like I said, where, where just basic services that, that every human being needs to, to exist at a very basic level don't exist. And there's no, there's no excuse for that. There's no reason why bathrooms or bathrooms could not be put in place for people to have a dignified place to, to go to the bathroom or a place for people to have a, have a shower, or get, get cleaned up, and and um, and and begin the process of, of rebuilding a, a, their life, and and that's not uh, those services have not right. been delivered. Speaking of Green Party MLA Adam Olson about the encampment on Hastings Street, it's a difficult situation to understate it, but you know you've you've described the conditions there. On the other hand, you have a city fire chief who was a guest on the show here last week saying that. This is a a fire hazard, and there there have been lots of fires down there already. Thankfully, we have not seen a massive loss of life from a major blaze. But you know, the fire chief is concerned that something like that could happen, and not just fire racing through these tents and structures on the sidewalk, but potentially spreading to nearby buildings, which include housing for some of the people down there. Let me play a clip here for you, Adam, from Matthew Trudeau, who's a spokesperson for the Vancouver Fire Department, describing the conditions down there and why they're concerned. The challenge that we'd have with uh, putting up any kind of ladders into these buildings and supplying water into this building right now is completely inaccessible. So there is a fire department connection um, on the building somewhere, and there is no indication of where that is right now. Spoke to BC's Human Rights Commissioner about this issue on the show yesterday, and she was raising similar concerns to your own. And she said, in her view, in her view, this is actually illegal moving people along. She says it's counter to human rights laws to tell people to move along from the sidewalk. But what are you supposed to do when there's a there's a looming fire hazard right there? Your thoughts? Well, I, I don't I don't disagree that there's a, a fire hazard. Anybody who's seen the pictures who've been down there can can uh, definitely associate that there's going to be a, a a real fire hazard and life safety issues. There's there's life safety issues with the uh, conditions that people are living in. Those are life safety issues as well. Um, but this is not a situation that has appeared overnight. This is a situation that has been existing uh, and growing for a number of weeks, as you pointed out in the entry as, as we uh, opened this, this segment. Uh, two weeks ago was when uh, the fire chief uh, made the first call to, to have these removed. This has yeah. been a problem that's been growing for months. You know, my, my uh, decision to put out a statement yesterday was, a, was as a result of the fact that I was doing a media scan and looking and, and had not seen anything from the MLA of that area, Melanie Mark, from the Minister of Social Development, Nick Simons, Nothing from the interim uh, uh, housing minister and the minister of Indigenous relations, and many of those are our relatives from Indigenous communities across the province, Murray Rankin, 
nothing from the premier, John Horgan, and nothing from the leadership candidate, uh, who is the former minister of housing, David Eby. Only a single retweet from the newest entry into the BC Liberal uh, or the BC NDP leadership race, Angelia Apergarai. So complete mm. silence from the mayor, complete silence from our current uh, BC NDP government, all members uh, of the of the cabinet that that uh, have a responsibility uh, for these uh, to to improve and to address these conditions from a government that when I stood in question period and asked whether they believed that housing was a human right, they were very quick to answer that question. Yes. What? And that was a year ago. And they have not they have not addressed this. So, yes, there are real fire and life safety issues on the streets of the downtown east side today. But that has been a situation that's been growing for months, for years. And this government is like right. there's no tweets. There's no comments. Just complete and total silence. Uh, well, yeah. this, well, this current government just kind of stares at their own navel. I, th- I think that's a I think that's a really a really good point. Let me ask you though about the immediate crisis and urgency here, and that is the fact that there's nowhere for these people to go. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, BC Housing put out a statement this week saying, "Hey, by the way, guys, as you're shutting down these tents, don't look at us because we don't have any place to put people." The city of Vancouver also also said, "We don't have any housing." So what should be done in the interim? Like when I asked the Human Rights Commissioner about this yesterday, she said, well, why not set up, a, uh, allow people to pitch their tents in a parking lot or something? Like set up a, you know, a government-sanctioned tent city for people to live in the interim. Do you think that's, like, do you think that should be done right now? Well, I mean, I, I guess the alternative is people are setting up a unsanctioned tent right. city. I mean, yeah. that, that's like, like so... Uh, the, in, in downtown Victoria, they created a, in a parking lot, they, they brought in temporary housing units and created a community and provided services. There's been, an, um, I can talk to a number of people uh, on Salt Spring Island who have been proponents of Canastoga huts. These are not long-term solutions, but, but moving people out of, uh, of a place where they currently are to nowhere. You know, I, I came uh, down uh, the Trans-Canada Highway from Chilliwack, and the rest stops were ho- were housing people. Uh, we stopped uh, for a coffee in in, uh, in in Maple Ridge, I believe it was, a parking lot full of people that were camping. The reality is is that this is a pervasive problem. This is a pervasive okay. issue, and we we need to provide temporary solutions for these people to move right. to, or else we're just going to scatter them around our communities. Thank you for coming on today. Possible. Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. All right, here we go now, calling all condo dwellers. If you own a condo, rent a condo, we're going to answer your condo questions here. Here's one for you. What if you have an elevator in your condo that's been broken down for four months? That is what people in the West End are dealing with at a condo tower, 21 stories no elevator. Got Tony Giaventu standing by. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Grace Key. It's a West End condo that rises 21 stories, but if you want to get up and down, you've got to take the stairs. Residents say one elevator has been out for four months. The only other elevator is now out of service. It's turned into a major inconvenience for me, but I'd say it's life-changing for for others in the building. I live in the third floor, yeah. so I can take the stairs, but I guess for the other people that live in, I don't know, in the 
12 4 or something like it's frustrating of course residents were instructed to call the fire department there's one right next door if they couldn't use the stairs and needed assistance another letter clarified to only call in case of an emergency call the fire call the fire department if you can't get up the stair what what are the fire department going to do they can send a firefighter over there to carry you up the stairs or bring you up on a ladder or something i don't know let's check in with tony giaventu now Executive Director of Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. Hey, Tony. Yeah, morning, Mike. Yeah, it's a bit, uh, a bit of a scary situation, isn't it? Yeah, what do you think of that? Man, I feel for the people living there. Imagine if you're uh, living in the penthouse there on the top floor. <laughs> got to trudge up and down those stairs every day. Yeah, well, and property owners, when it comes to elevators, and this, this really affects life safety in a lot of ways. You're going to have people on the upper floors or mid floors or people with disabilities. You're going to have people with accessibility problems. They're going to miss medical appointments, treatments, there may be emergency situations as a result. Corporation has a fair amount of liability for this. And, you know, I think elevators like roofing systems and hot water heating systems are really emergency systems that need to be maintained and repaired. You can't let them go to the point where they're no longer serviceable. Yeah, and especially when you hear about an elevator that's been broken down for months, like we heard in that report, we're also told one of the problems is, as usual, a shortage of professionals to to maintain and fix these elevators. There's only like there's only like what a very small number of elevator companies in BC, correct? Yeah, and that's actually a bit of a problem across the country. It's not just British Columbia. So you know, like our our recommendation to these uh, two strata corporations right out of the gate, negotiate really reliable service contracts with the innovator companies. And you can negotiate penalties and conditions into them if they're not performing or meeting them. But when an elevator has been broken down for four months, that's not um, an availability of service. That's, uh, that's a greater problem that may be associated with funding, may be associated with a, a technology problem with that elevator that has to be remedied. Um, I'd be seeking some work from some other consultants to figure out how to get these resolved quickly. Yeah, so what would you recommend for people who are living in that building? I mean, like you said, I mean, this is this is not a laughing matter. This is potentially a life-or-death situation for people if they're stuck on those top floors. What can yeah, they do? Like, what, op- what options yeah. do people have? They're not the first building. Uh, they need yeah. to look at their, they need to look closely at their elevator service contract and look at what kind of liability there is for the company. Um, I would be picking up the phone and talking to the lawyer and saying, how, you know, who's going to be responsible here if we can't get these elevators back up and running for the protection and safety of our residents? Uh, corporations certainly assume some responsibility, but if the elevator company is really dropping the ball on the responsibilities, um, that's a whole other issue. And, and you know, there's, there's this whole argument that, you know, the components are proprietary in our unit, in our building, and we can only use components from that company. That's not true. You can force the situation to get generic components on the market to get these elevators up and running until the proprietary com- components are available. And, uh, you know, we, uh, I, I dealt with another building quite recently where they said, well, it's going to be three weeks before the parts can be delivered. Pick up the phone, call the company supervisor, the company owner, and say, look, we'll pay the shipping charges to get that, those components here in 48 days. Um, take, take control of the situation and force the repairs of these elevators. 
Speaking of Tony Giaventu, Condo Homeowners Association of BC. Hey, Tony, let's talk about a couple of other uh, issues in the news with condo people living in condos right now. And we talked about this last time you were on the show. Air conditioning, right? So we're going through the heat waves. It's going to turn hot again later this weekend. What about for people who would like to put an air conditioning unit into their condo? Typically, are, are those not allowed under strata bylaws? Well, you have to look at kind of the legacy of those bylaws. A lot of those bylaws go back 15, 20, 25 years where window-mounted air conditioners ran and sounded like a tractor running next door. They caused damage to buildings. They were never maintained or serviced. They were energy hogs. Um, That whole scenario has changed so much. Um, There are all types of systems now that are quiet running, low low consumption of energy, um, uh, don't cause damage to buildings. Um, you know, it's really up to the strata corporations now to look at their bylaws, look at their buildings, um, see what kind of alternative modifications and models are available now. Having cooling in the summertime when these extreme heat conditions is just as important as having heat in the wintertime for survival. Um, And we know from last year's heat dome and the number of deaths that occurred that it is a life safety issue. And it's it's when it comes to medical conditions requiring a stable climate, it's a human rights issue as well. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think uh, air conditioning is becoming essential now for a lot of people. Are you starting to see that reflected in some of the strata bylaws and rules and regulations now? Yeah, and we're talking to quite a few strata corporations who are actually um, getting a consultant in, um, you know, a building envelope engineer or electrical consultant, somebody who can come in, look at the building and say, look, this is how you do it the best way. This is the method. The strata corporation then talks to certain manufacturers and suppliers and says, what do you have available? We're going to set up a spec that works for everybody so that if somebody wants to install a system, it's done properly, it's safe, it's efficient, it's attractive, doesn't produce noise. Um, You know, it's, it's, time for the new generation and the new generation of air conditioning appliances are really so much better for sure and speaking about electrical later in the show today tony we're going to be talking about electric vehicles and the market for evs lots of people are thinking about evs are thinking about switching from a gas-powered vehicle including our own family we're looking at some evs right now what is the situation typically in a lot of condo developments when it comes to electric electrical charging stations for an EV in the in parking? So we have to remember that we've got over 34,000 strata corporations in the province, and very few of them are the same. So there isn't kind of a one-rule-fits-all scenario. Um, a, lot of, a lot of where the EV charging is a really a challenge is apartment buildings with underground parking garages. And a lot of the older buildings really have a capacity limit of energy in their building. They may require electrical upgrades or electrification changes in their parking garage. BC Hydro has a great program, um, uh, a co-funding program to do um, electrical capacity evaluations, and they will help fund if you do a sufficient number of parking um, uh, electrification for charging stations, they'll help to fund the upgrade to your building. So, you know, it's it's really worth looking at that. But for a lot of buildings, it's a significant cost because the older buildings really are already at their limit with electrical capacity. Compound that with a whole bunch of people that might want to put heat pumps for cooling into their units as well. Um, you know, you really need a capacity study on your building.
building to figure out how much energy we're going to need in the future because our current system, it simply can't serve it. Speaking of Tony G. Aventu, Condo Homeowners Association of BC, I recommend his column, Condo Smarts. And Tony, did I see this correctly? You just wrote your 1,000th column? Condo Smarts column? (laughs) Wow. Isn't that something? We started in um, uh, November of uh, 2002 when Jeannie Reed was the um, editor of the home section, and she had a condo problem, and we worked through it, and she said, you know, this would make really a great weekly column. Why don't we try it for a couple months? Well, here we are 20 years later and 1,000 columns later, and, uh, you know, most most of the issues really are fairly common sense but the root of most of the issues are economics you know and that's what strata corporations really struggle with is we have high housing prices people are faced with high costs for upgrading buildings and systems and and it's the economics of buildings that's the biggest challenge for most buildings what what would you say is the most common question you get about from condo owners or condo dwellers who fixes my unit when there's a leak um, or damage to my unit. That's yeah. that's probably the number one call because we're you know we're stacked on top of each other or next to each other. So when there's a water escape from a broken pipe, an overflowed bathtub, a fire, you name it. Um, if there isn't an insurance claim, uh, condo owners really struggle with understanding that without an insurance claim on the Stratus Insurance, they're on the hook for the repairs to their unit. So. You know, homeowner insurance policies are, are they're not cheap, right. but they're worth it for every condo owner because they really help to protect your liability and your investment. But it's probably the most confusing thing, I think, for most people. I think we get into a condo and, you know, we've got this carefree living. Somebody else is going to take care of it. But you really still have to look at what your responsibilities are for your unit. Let's go right to your phone calls on condos. Ben in Coquitlam. Hi, Ben. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I had a question. Sure. I uh, had just purchased our family condo, and it allows no rentals in the strata, but we're considering uh, moving. Hopefully, I'd like to be able to rent my unit at some point. I'm just wondering how I can go about uh, petitioning the strata to change that, uh, that ruling. Like, how can you rent out your condo if rentals are not allowed? Exactly, yeah. Okay, Tony. Well, at this point in history, rental bylaws are still enforceable, so you can't. Um, you could rent it to a family member, which would be a parent or a child of you or your spouse. Um, they're automatically exempt. Um, what year was the building built? That would that really helps to explain the um, other possibility. Ben, are you sure. still there? Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I, yeah, nineteen ninety six. Okay. So buildings before 2010 had an exemption from rentals, but it only applied to the first owner. So it wouldn't apply in this case. So, yeah, unfortunately, at this point, there isn't really any exemption for you other than family members um, with respect to renting out the unit. Let's go to Francis on. Thanks for the call, Ben. Francis in Vancouver. Hi, Francis. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Um, So I have asked my strata. for uh, a through-the-wall air. I live in a, a three-story um, townhome, and I live on my bedroom's underneath a metal roof, and it's just my unit is unusable during the heat. And so I asked my strata to put a through-the-wall air conditioning unit 
um, they um, um, they denied it on the basis that, well, they were concerned about aesthetics, what it would look like from the outside, and also the noise level. So I did some research, and I found out that 50 to 60 decibels is what uh, is the quietest air conditioning unit that you can get on the market. Mine is 52 that I want to get. And then I changed the position of where I was going to put through the wall unit um, to my balcony where nobody would see the outside of this unit. So I figured, okay, they can't say no now. No one will see the outside of the unit. It's the quietest air conditioning, one of the quietest you could get on the market. And they still denied my claim. Mm. Now, um, the thing is, I have taken them to the tribunal in the past, and I have won because they've just not been a very active strata. And I feel at this point that it's just like a, it was a split vote, three, yes, set, three said yes, three said no. And I'm wondering if there's any recourse I have, because I think cooling in the summer is as essential as heat in the winter at yeah. this point. So, Tony, your thoughts? Well, you know, first step is, um, request a hearing of council. Council has to grant a hearing within 30 days. Um, see if there's any type of concessions. Look closely at your bylaws to see on what grounds they're actually prohibiting it. Strata corporations don't have to permit alterations to common property, but they do have a duty under the Human Rights Code to accommodate people. So, you know, if you have any, as you say, it's uninhabitable in the heat, um, if there are any type of health conditions that may be adversely affected in one way or another because of the heat, which is really quite common, you might also have a human rights claim. And if you have a human rights claim, the tribunal can also award damages with respect to this. So try and encourage your strata through a hearing to look at a way that people can be accommodated in the building for these installations. Wow. Okay, Francis, good luck with that. Let's squeeze in one more here. Dave in New West. Go quick, Dave. Go ahead. Dave, please be quick. Dave in New West. Go ahead. Oh, hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I lived in the apartment uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, It was a uh, rental building. It was a new build. And within the first three months, uh, the elevator was out for like six or seven weeks. And it was only a six-story, so a lot of people were okay uh, walking up and down the stairs. But I always thought, like, what if you had, like, someone elderly or someone in a wheelchair, you know, on the upper floors, like, what, what do they do, right? Hey, uh, we got Tony. We got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Uh, no, to- I totally agree. And whether it's six floors or 20 floors is irrelevant. If you if you have a disability, a health condition, um, or, or, you know, even a mild emergency, not a, an imminent life safety thing, but something you have to get out of the building to get to emerge for, if you're on the 20th floor, this is a serious problem. Um, elevator maintenance and service is critical. The technology of elevators and their quality has changed not for the better. And in new buildings, it's not uncommon to see elevators um, go down within the first six months or a year. It's actually it's a huge okay. problem. Hey, Tony, here's to another thousand columns. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Look forward to it. Okay. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk electric vehicles now. Are you in the market for an EV? I'm thinking about it myself. Our family's looking at it. I think a lot of people are taking a look at an EV. Check out these numbers here. A recent survey by KPMG found 71% of Canadians are would consider an EV as their next vehicle purchase. A lot of people are interested. A lot of people say they're likely to purchase an EV. They're more likely now than they were 
in the past. But while there's a lot of interest in electric vehicles, how many Canadians currently own one? Only 4% of Canadians own an EV right now, according to this survey. Lots of questions about EVs. How about the cost of them? I mean, that's one of the main ones. The cost of an EV, the availability of them. How about the charging stations, the availability of charging stations, the battery life, the range anxiety, as it's called. How far can you drive an EV before you need to charge up again? I've got John Stonier standing by to discuss this. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter David Aiken. What's been holding consumers back from buying an electric vehicle? Answer, they're just too expensive. That was the number one reason cited by 43% of those surveyed by the PCO. Lack of infrastructure, charging stations and the like, was cited by 15%. And concerns about reliability was an issue for 10%. Now, the Trudeau government has been offering subsidies of up to $5,000 for those who buy a zero-emission electric vehicle, and it's in the midst of a five-year, $130 million program to build more charging stations across the country. The PCO poll suggests the government could ramp that up. A majority of voters in every province, including Alberta, support the idea of federal cash being used to help get consumers into electric vehicles. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, John Sonier. John is a spokesperson and past president, Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, John, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be back. Okay, John, let's talk about electric vehicles and the trends we're seeing out there. And you know probably better than anyone in B.C. right now just how much interest there are in electric vehicles, lots of people considering them. What are you hearing from people? Like, Do you think more people than ever are considering getting into an electric vehicle right now? Exactly right. There are more people than ever before. And recently, just with the uh, past six months' experience with gasoline prices, that's even pushed the limit even more. Yeah, and let's talk about some of the barriers. Like, for people who are thinking about getting an EV, what is holding people back, do you think, in many cases? Well, there are some serious problems with our supply chain right now. Uh, For any vehicle, gasoline or electric, uh, the automotive uh, manufacturers have really had some problems in the past year. Prices are going up, and electric vehicles are more pricey uh, than their traditional uh, counterparts. However, um, what we're finding now, the biggest problem is that they're just not available. Every wow. automaker is scrambling to produce uh, a full line of electric vehicles, and uh, the wait lists have gone from, you know, uh, well, even just a, a year ago, they were two to three months for any car you wanted. They've never been available just as you, you know, pick the color on the lot. It's always been a demand uh, situation, and now it's it's much worse. Yeah, uh, some, I got a, some weights are up to three years, and many oh. many product lines. Um, one that I'd love to have a Volkswagen ID Buzz. You know the the Volkswagen throwback to the 1960s bus they had that's going to be fully electrified. They're not even taking uh, 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 deposits until 2023, and then it's going to be delivery 2024. So it's a real problem right now. Yeah, I got a buddy of mine who's just ordered a. Uh, a hybrid Toyota vehicle, and he said it's like a year wait, a year wait for it to show up. I, mean, this I, I is... was checking in with the Hyundai dealership on Ionic 5s, which are very, very excellent electric cars that have uh, a feature called vehicle to load where you can actually you know, charge 
it, it's basically a mobile generator. You can charge uh, your refrigerator, your campsite, your cottage, your home uh, from your car. And those cars, uh, they're on the streets now. I'm seeing more and more of them, but the waiting time right now is three years. That's oh, Vancouver, man. That's the Vancouver dealership. So it's not in a good situation. Yeah. And is there any hope that it's going to improve in the short term or no? That's a question for a supply chain expert. Um, you know, there's people saying it's we should be you know better in six months. Uh, you know, uh, semiconductor chips. There's so many different variables right now. Uh, a friend of mine who's uh, ordered her ID4 last August just got word today or yesterday that uh, she'll be getting hers in uh, three weeks. It's going to be arriving in Montreal and moving across the country. Um, and that's after she was promised to get it in December of last year. So this is a very common thing. But, however, the value of electric vehicles is really there. Um, yes, the price up front is higher, but once you have them, the operating costs are almost, almost immaterial. Um, gas, you know, re- replacing electricity for gasoline is going to be, say, $30 a month uh, if you're charging from your home. Uh, to uh, as opposed to whatever you're paying for gasoline. It really is unnoticeable, uh, and it's at least uh, 10 times cheaper than gasoline at this moment. Okay, so let's talk about why, yeah, I mean, that, that's a good descriptor, of I think, of why a lot of people are keenly interested, for sure. Let's talk about some of the other things, though, that people may be wondering about or maybe holding people back. So range anxiety. I mean, this is the term we've heard for years now. People are worried about, well, hang on a sec. How far can I drive this thing before I need to charge it up again? That's improving, correct? Well, I'd love to d- discuss that because, you know, it, the range you're going to get in your car is going to be right in front of your face when you hop in it. It's going to tell you exactly how many kilometers, well, within 5%, 10% of, of what you're going to get. So uh, the range anxiety thing has been massively overblown. It really is not an issue. Uh, the, the only, it's not range anxiety. Uh, when you're driving from home uh, for your normal driving, you basically can charge up every night if you want. You probably don't need to. But you, that's absolutely no range anxiety. There's no need to stop anywhere when you're on your normal 50 to 100 kilometers a day driving. Just none. The only time is when you're traveling inner city and you're going from city to city and then you need to know where the charging stations are. Right. Um, and then we do have a problem with intercity public DC fast charge stations. And that is they're there now for most routes across Canada, but they are, you know, during peak periods, they get congested. We still have more charging station heads, more charger, charging plugs re- ready to be available and it's always going to be peak period times that are going to be the, the problem. You know, when you have the kids in the car and you're going on vacation and it's Friday afternoon, you're pulling into Hope and there's, you know, whatever there is in Hope, 20 or 30 chargers, but they're all full and you have to wait. It's a problem. Yeah, I can certainly see it. Now, that is, it's improving though, right? I mean, they're adding, they're adding this infrastructure all the time. Is that right? Yeah. Five years ago, yeah. we didn't have the, the connectivity, uh, you know, that we'd like. Now, we basically have charging stations frequently enough where they're, they're available. The issue is congestion at peak periods. Um, but we do have the basic uh, network is there. You can comfortably go across Canada. Uh, I did that uh, back in May. Uh, and had a good good idea of how many stations are, are available across Canada. They, they're along the Trans-Canada, not a problem. 
Um, once you go off, you know, more northerly routes, you go north of uh, Prince George or, you know, north of uh, the Okanagan, then you're going to have uh, issues with, with finding enough chargers. Right. And that's one of the things that Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association is promoting is that we have, you know, no matter where you are in the province, whether it's, uh, you know, north of 54th parallel or not, that for primary and secondary highways, we have the same um, frequency of charging stations so that no matter where you go in the province, if you, if you want to drive up to the Alaska Highway, you should be able to have the same amount right. of, of uh, charging uh, opportunities. Okay, speaking of the Alaska Highway and points north like Prince George, that brings up another question in, in my mind because I've heard from people who may, they listen to the show, but they, maybe they don't live in the, in the lower mainland. They might live in the north or in the interior of British Columbia where there's super cold winters, right? And people have concerns about the performance of electric vehicles in a cold weather climate. Is that, getting, are there, is that a legit concern? Uh, it is. Uh, if you live in those areas, it certainly is. Uh, there's people been driving Teslas and electric cars in Norway for many years. They're far ahead of us, and uh, they do get by in the wintertime, but you do re- will experience a reduction in, in range. There's no doubt about it. Um, so the current chemistries, if you're, you know, I talked to my friends in Manitoba, and they're saying, okay, Minus 30 below, yeah, you're getting half the range that you, your car would normally have. But they, they compensate for that. They, they charge more, and you have to you know, sort of plan your route if you're going more than average daily driving. If you're doing, like I say, like a, an intercity trip as opposed to your normal driving around town uh, is the, or, or where you pay attention. But um, it's going to be interesting. In the next few years, uh, solid-state batteries are, are uh, you know, they're talking about that they will have much better cold-weather performance. Uh, the technology is changing. We don't know exactly what, what the functionality will be uh, with these new solid-state batteries, which are going to be coming on stream in the next uh, two to three years. Uh, so the technology is always improving. At, at this point in time, you know, your electric car in a cold-weather climate is still going to work. You're going to do the same thing with your gasoline car when it's minus 30. You're going to plug it into a block heater while you're going to plug in yeah. your electric car. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about electric vehicles with John Stoney, we've got a ton of phone calls here. Gordon in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Gordon. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I own a uh, plug-in hybrid. Uh, so I do get a little bit of electric vehicle uh, for about 30 kilometers. One thing I didn't know about when I purchased my car, and uh, it, you don't really hear much about, is that electric cars come with a carbon footprint deficit because making um, the batteries, the manufacturing of the batteries is really environmentally problematic. Um, and so basically you're getting a deficit um, compared with a carbon uh regular carbon vehicle um and it takes like a year or a year and a half or something like that in order to pass the carbon emissions of the uh internal combustion so let's get let's get john's thoughts on that john what do you think of that well uh you're not quite comparing apples to apples here and i'll I'll tell you the difference uh every car has a carbon footprint whether it's gasoline or, or or electric and basically the carbon footprints of electric vehicles uh, are probably now that we have bigger batteries are probably a little bit higher than the regular gasoline, but they both have carbon footprints. The problem with a gasoline car is it never recovers any carbon. It's always contributing more carbon as it's operating. An electric vehicle, especially one in BC with 98% uh, renewable energy from our hydroelectric system, 
uh, is basically stopping those emissions once it starts driving. Uh, so there's no more additional. And the other thing with electric car is it's at, it's it's going to last a lot longer. It's not going to have the oil changes. It's not going to have the parts and engine rebuilds. It's going to last a lot longer without any more carbon uh, intake of parts. So you'll, your your analysis is correct. There is carbon in producing a car, uh, electric car, and there is some carbon in the batteries, and um, that is, again, uh, pretty hard to actually measure, and I've never seen a good, accurate source saying this one has 10 tons of carbon and this one doesn't, but uh, typically cars run between uh, small cars, six, and Hummers around 20 tons of carbon just to make those vehicles. Mark in Delta. Hi, Mark. Go ahead. Morning. Uh, former Tesla owner here. I'm waiting uh, next month for my new Hyundai Onyx 5 to be built. I'm so excited. Uh, I'm not worried about range anxiety because those cars are about 550 to 600. I've seen people getting over 600 kilometers on a full charge. Uh, the only bummer I'm finding is that I'm only qualifying for a federal rebate because I've already had the provincial with my Tesla. So, yeah, I can't wait. It's a great car. It's uh, revolutionary. So, thank yeah. you. Oh, terrific. Yeah, the Ionic 5, I, I, I would love to get one myself, but it's three years out. <laughs> Hey, John, what do you think about, speaking of rebates, what did you think about the changes the provincial government made to its rebate program, putting that income test in there? Well, you know, I think, you know, taxpayer money is, uh, it should be spent wisely. And, um, you know, anybody who's buying a dollars $80,000 car probably can afford it. Um, and uh, so I think the income the income uh, limits are, are a good thing. They do the same thing in the states. Uh, the limits are slightly higher. It's 150,000 cutoff. I think it's 100,000 cutoff here in BC now. Uh, I think that's just wise management of taxpayers' right. money. Uh, the benefits of electric cars—they really don't need too many incentives. If you know the benefits and you've been driving them, uh, yeah, I, I uh, right. used that my first rebate many years ago, and uh, happy happily buying new cars without any incentives. Chris and Langley. Hi, Chris. Go ahead. Hi, guys. Uh, quickly, uh, one of the other things that's missing in that carbon debate is the fact that the fuel it needs to be uh, transferred around uh, to, to run the carbon vehicle. Um, I got a Tesla, 240,000 kilometers on it. I think I've put about $1,300 of work in it. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, I don't know about the, the energy I put in it, but it's sort of cost to that, but it's a fraction of gas. Um, but I just want to mention that uh, this Tesla superchargers, they, each location has, you know, 20 to, to 30 to 40. In Surrey, they got, uh, I think they got about 25 or 30 in, in Surrey by Guilford alone, um, as opposed to other stations like uh, BZ Hydro's got one, uh, you know, uh, Petro-Canada, they think they have one, so you're going to have a lot of wait times. Tesla's actually in the process of opening up all their charging stations to every manufacturer, which is, you know, mm. you think would be uh, an odd thing for a company to do, to give away their um, their their the okay. benefits you have for the owners. But anyways, it's going to open it up, and it's going to be a lot easier to charge for everybody. Thank, thank yeah. you, Chris. we got 30 seconds left, John. Go ahead. There's a great debate on that, uh, whether we should have a single standard like in, um, in Europe. And the CCS standard, that's correct. Tesla is going to adding CCS, the, the general standard here in, in uh, North America. Uh, really, ideally, we should have one standard. So is right. it CCS or Tesla? <laughs> okay. Hey, John, thanks for coming on. we got a ton more calls we can't get to. We'll just have to have you back. Terrific. Look forward okay. to it. 
All right, here we go now with our summer pest problems, and I'm talking ants, wasps, other assorted creepy crawlies. Time to talk to the expert now, Mike Laundry, owner of Westside Pest Control, one of our favorite guests on the show. Hey, Mike, thanks for coming on again. Hey, good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. So I really like, first of all, I really like the Westside Pest Control ads. They play a lot here on this show, and I always get a kick out of them. So let's play one of your ads here. This is one that I, I really like. Let's have a listen to it. Coming soon, they must eat. Their hunger is never satisfied. Ravenous, unrelenting, leaving nothing but hollow destruction in their wake. Termites. Protect your property with Westside Pest Control. Westside Pest Control has the tools and know-how to eliminate your termite problem. Don't live in fear. WestsidePestControl.com. Okay, okay, Mike, we're not going to charge you for that one. Okay. That sounds like an episode of The Walking Dead or something. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, you know what? I... To be to be f- totally honest, termites can do a pile of, of damage, and and uh, and so can so can carpenter ants. So, for a lot of people, the uh, the destruction and the huge cost associated with it um, are not something they want to live through. Um, but uh, you know, pest control isn't always fun, so. We like to try and find a little bit of humor in it when we can. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they are fun ads for sure, but there's a serious side to it too. Like, fortunately, I've never had to deal with uh, termite infestation. How how common are those? Uh, we actually get quite a, quite a few termite infestations. Most of them are are located on the North Shore, on the Sunshine Coast, uh, in some areas of Port Moody and, and Coquitlam, essentially places that get a lot of rain and are in close proximity to areas with a lot of rotting wood in, in forests and that kind of thing. Um, not as common in other parts of the city, although we do see them throughout Vancouver and other municipalities. Most of the termites that we get around here are relatively harmless and in relatively harmless um they're 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 normally just going after really rotten wood so having a termite infestation usually means there's some underlying causes that are actually more important to address than just the pest control needs okay mike summertime pests like what are the most common calls that you're getting there for summertime pests right now right now it is Definitely wasps. Usually, wasps. Okay. Wa- June, July, and August, pavement ants are just our phones are ringing off the hook. Um, however, with that, you know, I know we're in the middle of a no- normal or a, or a hot summer at the moment, um, but it was a slow and wet start to the spring and summer, and uh, and for that reason, a slow a slow start. And I don't know if we're going to see as many pavement ants as we, as we have over the last five to ten years this summer. However, the wasps always seem to be waiting. I, I think summer could start halfway through September and they would be ready for it. Okay, we've got some wasps that have been buzzing around our place lately too, now that you mention it. I remember a few years ago they were pretty bad. I went out and I bought one of those those fake wasp nests, you know, so it, it sort of looks like a cylindrical type shaped thing that you hang up and it looks like a paper wasp nest. And that's supposed to scare them off. Like they see that and they think like, oh, 
okay, some other wasp colony already has claimed this territory, so I'm, I'm out of here. Do those things work? I, I, I think there is a limited amount of science behind it, but from yeah. my experience in the field, I have eliminated two yellow jacket nests that were the size of a basketball within about 15 feet of proximity to each other. So oh. um, I, I would be, if you're going to go out and spend money in a, in, a, in a local hardware store to try and keep the population at bay, the best thing you can do as opposed to, buying one of those nests if you really want to do that just go and spend 25 cents and get a paper bag from your grocery store but uh, your your money for 10 bucks is better spent on on a pheromone wasp trap chemical free pheromone wasp trap you can get them at most hardware stores and um put it up about 20 to 30 feet away from where you want the wasps not to be um and you should have a an easier time barbecuing and enjoying a glass of wine Okay, how about ants? Like you mentioned, ants are a, a problem at this time of year. But pavement ants, like what? What's the deal with those? Yeah, so they live underneath flat structures. They basically live between a solid object and and um, and and soil. Their favorite is is sand with a little bit of moisture. Uh, Richmond is notorious for having lots of them because most houses are right at ground level, there's slab on grade, and there's a really high sand content directly underneath the house. And in addition to that, a lot of people have heated floors so their populations continue to grow throughout the wintertime. But what people typically oh. see at this time of year, out on their back patio, they might have patio pavers, paving stones, um, cracks in the driveway. They'll, be, they'll see sand piles coming up. And if some of them are venturing out for food, They'll venture indoors, and as soon as one of them locates food, they leave a scent on the ground so that others will follow the Congo line, and, and soon there'll <laughs> be lots of them in your kitchen. Welcome back. Mike Laundry is my guest. West Side Pest Control, uh, always a super popular guest. Full phone board here. Patricia in Vancouver. Hi, Patricia. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Could you please tell me what to do about fruit flies? They drive me insane. Oh, yeah, fruit sure. flies. Me too. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, it's the time of year when they're plaguing everyone. There's a few lingering around my kitchen right now. And, uh, yeah, it's a, they're one of those pests that you really need to stay on top of. Um, this time of year, most people are, in fact, seeing fruit flies. However, the majority of the year, drain flies are often mistaken for fruit flies. Uh, do you have fruit out on the counter in a, in a bowl, Patricia? No, I have them covered with a tea towel. But yesterday I opened okay. up my garbage bin and they came swarming out of the thing. So, Ugh. yeah, yeah. Um, so that uh, was just going to, so another, another uh, uh, thing I was just going to recommend. I know that, um, uh, that our, our city is great in promoting composting and I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, but if you've got a little compost bin, the place that you want to keep it, at least from May through September, is your freezer, not yeah. under the sink. So all food waste, everything should be going into a compost bin that sits in your freezer at least until the early fall. And without that decaying organic matter, they'll have nowhere to hang out and move on to uh, to somewhere else. Okay, let's is go to... 
Uh, okay, sorry, Patricia. I'm just gonna, in the interest of getting as many callers, I'm gonna move on here. Okay, good luck with that one, Tristan in Vancouver. Hi, Tristan. Go ahead. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Hello, Tristan from Kelowna. Oh, Kelowna. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. No problem. I got a good one for you. Uh, kids call them roly polies, but they're also known as like pill bugs or whatnot. In the garden, they eat everything. The strawberries. They just there's like a bunch of them in my garden, and I've not try to get rid of them mike sure so this is one of the times of year when when some of the things that we can dust and sprinkle around around gardens can actually be be helpful the rain usually washes them away so in the spring there's really not much use but things like diatomaceous earth or cayenne pepper um, are, are things that you can sprinkle around those those garden beds um, uh, cayenne pepper specifically will also deter uh, not just insects, but, but animals. Um, the diatomaceous earth will probably work better for the, the insects, um, and it won't do any harm to your, um, if, if it's an organic vegetable garden, it won't do any harm to the plants. So, so for the cayenne pepper, will you just like sprinkle it on the ground? Uh, just around the perimeter of where the, of where the garden bed is. If, if you have rats or raccoons coming around, um, the, the really the trick to doing it is to actually get it out immediately because if a raccoon's been coming around for the last two weeks, they're going to pretty much just ignore the, the smell. So um, oh. like, like any, any pest that's, that's an issue, you'd want to get on top of it right away so they're not, habitu- so they're not, they're not conditioned to uh, coming there all the time. Dave in South Surrey. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Yeah, hello. Um, I have a rat problem or a potential rat problem. I live in a a townhouse complex, and um, we have had rats inside. Um, And we, in my instigation, we have about uh, 10 of those, um, what do they call them, Bell Labs boxes. And I was using uh, a Jaguar. We go through a bucket of that about every year. And um, I'm not sure what to do now. We've tried traps, and they don't work. Uh, okay, just okay. Debate. Mike, what do you think? Sure. So, you know what? There are properties in Vancouver that, that we deal with, uh, residential and, and commercial, that have ongoing rodent pressure. It's just because of the mild climate that we, that we live in. Um, Vancouver is, is uh, unfortunately not likely to ever change um, in that respect. So the best thing that you can try and do is protect the structure itself. And for that, it's going over the perimeter of the structure with a fine tooth comb to try and find potential access points. If they're rats and they're getting into the structure, there is no reason you shouldn't be able to keep them out. Even mice, we can keep out, but rats, absolutely. Um, whether it's us or another pest control company, as long as you find a pest control company that specializes in doing exclusion work to prevent them from coming in, they should be able to fix the problem. So, so you're saying what? There's no way to eradicate them. Not from like an entire neighborhood, but you can yeah. certainly keep them out of the structure. Okay, let's go to Craig in North Vancouver. Hi, Craig. Hi, Mike. Uh, I have that exact problem you were talking about with the cement pavers, the ants, and the sand. And I, I've heard of, like, borox and sugar. Don't know how friendly that is, but wonder what you would recommend. Mike. Yeah, um, absolutely. That is that is an effective 
it is an effective tool. Um, funnily enough, even though it sounds more organic um, from a pest control standpoint as a licensed company, because there is no such licensed product, it's not something that we're permitted to apply. And you, you definitely want to be cautious about how you apply it. My suggestion would be to um, to either create a, a lockable station yourself or go and spend a few dollars and buy a lockable mouse bait station and apply the bait inside of that. So, so the, the worst is, is, a, is really um, a mouse or, or, or likely an insect that's going to be able to gain access to it and put it in some inconspicuous places where kids and pets aren't going to be able to get, to get a hold of. But in terms of its efficacy, um, yes, I have heard of, of customers having some, some reasonably good results with uh, um, with some elimination payment ads, however, can number a hundred thousand underneath those those pavers. So, what you really want to try to do is get treatment into the ground. So, any product that you can apply through a straw to actually get into the nests is going to be your best bet. David on the line in Surrey. Hi, David. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi, Mike. Um, we live in a, a fairly new townhouse complex, two years old. Uh, all finished basements, and we have a millipede problem, and I mean a big millipede problem, uh, getting maybe 40 or 50 a day in the basements. Oh, oh man, Mike. Uh, so the, those guys are, are similar to, uh, to, to sow bugs in that they require a lot of moisture, and they're going to be living between the soil and the foundation of the, of the house. When it rains too much, they still need oxygen, but there's none in the ground, so they look for the next place to get some, and that's usually getting through cracks in the foundation, tiny, tiny cracks around doorways, windows, etc. They get essentially flushed in, and then what happens is once they're inside, there's not enough moisture, and they usually dry up and, and die. The best prevention for those types of insects, it's really time-consuming, Pull the baseboards off, go around the window and, and door frames and apply caulking or silicone to physically prevent them from being able to get in. Otherwise, your best friend is a vacuum. Any types of sprays or powders isn't going to do anything because they're already going to be in the structure and they're going to be dying oh. anyways. Oh, man, that sounds, that sounds like a tough situation. Good luck with that one, David. Let's, one more call. Peter in Abbotsford. Peter, you got to go quick here. Go ahead. Yeah, my issue is moles. How do I get rid of them? How do you get rid of moles, Mike? Moles. Call call my friend Mike, who comes to my place from ARG Mole Removal. I tried doing <laughs> moles in my first year of, of pest control. We can do everything, but moles are an art form. You want a mole expert. ARG Mole Removal is your is your best bet. How How bad can those infestations get, Mike? We got 30 seconds here. Well, the problem is, is a mole doesn't really differentiate between one property and the next. And when you yeah. see a mole hill, the moles have actually likely already moved on to another location. They spend their entire oh. lives underground. And they, those, those, those hills are created when they run into a rock or a stick or a root or, or a wall and then, uh. and then take on a new direction. So they okay. are, uh, yeah, yeah, a huge challenge. Good luck. Mike, thank you for coming on today. You bet.